listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. On this Easter Sunday, lead pastor Matt Dean preaches from John 20 and 21 in our sermon series, On This Rock, Jesus and the Church He Builds. He is risen. At 614 this morning, that text message was going off in our home today, and um, it's, been a, it's been an interesting week, and I'll talk more about that towards the end of our time tonight, but uh, I am thrilled to be here with you specifically, that we could come together as men and women, as children, as young and old alike, and to consider the power of what historically has happened in this weekend in April. This is the weekend that changed the world forever. And as we think about what Jesus did on the cross, and as we think about the church that he is building, as we think about his interaction with people that have often proved to be unfaithful and unreliable, one thing is faithful, and one thing is reliable, and that's the grace of God that we all lean upon increasingly with every day of our lives. And if you're new to this series, if you're new to this church night, we really have been for several weeks looking at Jesus and the church that he is building, and specifically a subplot and a sub-character of this story has been the life of Peter, and how it was Peter that confessed to Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. It was also the same Peter who made these promises to Jesus that he couldn't keep, and he made these decisions for Jesus that were not wise, and in fact, it would be Peter that would deny Jesus three times when the rubber met the road and when it came costly for him to be associated with Jesus. And we looked last week at the cross in which Jesus was betrayed and arrested, where Jesus gave himself over to the authorities, where Jesus was flogged, where he was beaten, where he was arrested, where he would be hung and crucified on a Roman cross as a common criminal just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And we left there last week with this heaviness and hope. I just want to show you a picture of this Skull Hill in case you weren't here. That, that's a real place in Jerusalem. And uh, just on the other side of this little hill is a, is a butchering place where animals were, were slaughtered. And Jesus possibly was crucified on this skill, Skull Hill. Do you see the skeleton there on the kind of left half? And Golgotha, this skull hill. And there, there are two possible locations for where Jesus was crucified. And it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. We know he was crucified. And we know he was buried. And we know he rose from the grave. I want to show you one other picture that I think will encourage you tonight. That's an empty grave. And 200 feet from that skull hill is a garden with a wine press that probably was tended by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus was buried. And you can go into this place. And if you go back and just curiously read the end of the Gospels, and you will see that the tomb was something that you could walk in and look to the right. And if you walk in this tomb and look to the right, that's what you see. And Mark's account specifically says you can walk into the tomb and look to the right. And when they walked in and looked to the right, like you're walking in and looking to the right, it was empty on the third day. And it's just incredible to stand in this place that was discovered in the 1800s through archaeology just some 200 feet from a skull hill. Don't get caught up in geography and don't right now get caught up in archaeology. If you want to, you can read this book. That's what I've been reading. But I can just stand solidly on this fact that it's true. 
It is absolutely true. And friends, if you're new to Christianity tonight, if you've never heard what Jesus has done for you tonight, let me just say there is no God like our God. And you can look at everything that the world believes and hold them up categorically against one another. And there is no God who gave his very life to set people free from the penalty and power of sin and to declare them righteous. There is no other God like our God. There are a lot of wonderful, sincere, devout people, but there is no God like our God. And on that skull hill, Jesus, historical, bodily, physically a man who was both God and man, hung on a cross to take on the penalty of your sin and mine, to take on your shame and mine, and to suffer in his body the wrath of a holy God. So much so that it would cost him his life. And three days later, in a tomb much like that, he was set free and victorious over death and sin forever. And let me just tell you, they never found the bones of Jesus. <laughs> and when you walk into this place and you consider that the wrath of God was poured onto Jesus, and in this place he lay, and in this place he rose to life, it will blow your mind. I took this picture. I stood there. There was no body of Jesus. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I want your faith to be encouraged tonight. This is not fairy tale. This is not made up history. There is historical, archaeological evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely true. So believe it and trust it. You can bank your life on it because I am too. If you've got your Bibles tonight, you can turn to John chapter 20, and we're just going to read through some of this together and end our time in John 21. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, but he saw and believed. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. That's how disheartened she was. 
and not just a few days before she had anointed him with oil. But she was so grieved in spirit that the resurrected Jesus standing face to face with her, she didn't even recognize it was him. Continue to read. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And isn't it powerful to know that one word from God, one word from God changes everything. Because in that moment, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I just want you to make a side note. There's grace for the disheartened and the distracted. There's grace for the disheartened and distracted. Continue to read. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day, the same day that he the tomb was empty the same day that he appeared to Mary in the garden. It says, when the disciples were together, I love this next part. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. Listen to this. With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Right? So I'm, I'm, now look, if he can raise from the dead, he can walk through walls. All right? So that's not a big intellectual leap for me. He, he rose from the grave, so truly, he can do what he wants. And I just think he just walked through the wall. You know, because the door was still locked. And he stood among them and said, peace. My presence be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Let me just say that to you again. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Because not just hours before, some of them had seen him breathe his last. Some of them were there by the graveside watching the stone roll over the door. These disciples who had traveled and journeyed with Jesus, who had seen miracles, heard teaching, seen the way Jesus interacted with the sinner and the struggler, they were heartbroken that their friend was crucified on a cross. And not all of them were in the garden that morning. And when Mary came and gave the report, they gathered together and they were waiting. And Jesus showed up and said, peace be with you. And their response was they were overjoyed. Can you imagine the emotion in the room when a risen Christ walks through the wall and shows up to these people that truly loved him and were confused by the weekend? How could he die? How could it be? And there he is among them. And Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, Unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. 
Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Side note, there's grace for the doubter. There's grace for the disheartened. There's grace for the distracted. There is grace for the doubter. And Jesus, in his compassion to Thomas, says, put your hand in my wrist where the nail went through. Put your hand in my side where blood and water flowed. Do you believe, my Lord, my God? And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. I love this next verse, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Circle, you may have life in his name. This is written that you would be alive in Jesus, that you would believe and have life in his name today that you would believe and have life in his name. A couple months ago, I had the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land. And I, though I had been a longtime reader of scripture, for me to stand in Jerusalem, to stand in Israel, and to see these places just did my heart incredible amounts of good to walk where Jesus walked and to be on the water where he was and to see these places. And, and, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my own journey of faith, and I hope that you are thinking about your own journey of faith, that are you believing and having life in his name? Am I believing and having life in his name? And I want you to hear what unfolds in this next story because it's so powerful. It's so powerful about the goodness of God, the goodness of Jesus to us. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas the doubter, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And Peter says to them, I'm going out to fish. And they're like, hey, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now you have to understand that where the sea is, there are two mountain ranges that come in and there are strong storms that kick up out of nowhere. And it's in fact just a huge, huge lake. But because of the geography and because of the climate, huge storms can come up. And this is the same place where Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. It just so happens that this night it wasn't wind and waves that were the problem. Let's continue to read. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you will find something. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. He commands the winds 
and the waves and the tilapia. Okay, that's the deal. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. I want to show you a photograph. This is the shore. <laughs> and if you see off in the distance in the water, about a hundred yards off, there's this little thing in the water. I'm standing on that shore, and I'm reading this passage, and I'm trying to envision what it would be like to be there. And see, from Jesus' perspective, Peter heading his way. Same guy that denied him three times is now making it as fast as he could to him. It says, Peter jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And we need, we need to pause for a moment. Because early on the day that Jesus was crucified, there was a different fire. And it was cold. Jesus had been arrested and brought into Caiaphas' place for questioning. And Peter was standing around a different fire. And as Peter was standing around a fire warming his hands, someone said to him, Hey, aren't you, aren't you connected to Jesus? And it was over a fire that smelled just like this fire, that Peter said, no, I do not know him. And Peter would deny him three more times, three times that evening over a fire. And isn't it amazing that the God of the universe and the king of all details is about to reinstate Peter over fire? Isn't it amazing that Jesus, whose body was broken as Peter was denying him over a fire, is now risen from the dead and standing over a fire and cooking for the very people that denied him. Listen to this next story. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many of the net, it was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. If you've ever wondered why the number 153, the time that this was written, that was the number of nations. And it was in this moment that 153 fish were caught. And it would be in this moment that the thought would be to go and take this broken body to 153 nations that the world would know. <laughs> Is that not amazing? And if you read the detail, the net was not torn, which is symbolic, I think, from John's perspective, that the gospel has power to save to the ends of the earth. Now listen to this next line, verse 15 of 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
do you truly love me more than these guys? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Side note, there's grace for those that deny him. Now here's the fine line. There's a huge difference between defiance and momentary denial. Hear me, hear me so carefully tonight. Jesus knew Peter's heart, and I do believe his love for him was genuine. Peter denied Jesus out of anxiety and fear, not out of defiance saying, I do not love you, I would not trust you. And there's room tonight for people who because of anxiety and fear wrestle with doubt and denial. But also hear this tonight. He said, Lord, you know I love you. And this speaks to the human condition. And having doubts about God is different than being arrogant and prideful and defiant in the face of God. Huge difference. There's mercy for the distracted. There's mercy for the disheartened. There's mercy for those people who doubt. There's mercy even for those who deny. But there is a difference between denial and defiance. And Jesus knew Peter's heart. And here's the thing. Jesus knows your heart. And make sure that if you're wrestling with doubt, it's in humility. And if you're wrestling with distraction, that you can still turn around and say, Lord, my Lord, my God. I just want you to hear this tonight, that as we look at what Jesus and Peter, their interaction tonight, this interplay between Jesus and Peter is very intentional. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three that we know of. And how many times did Jesus say to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus knew the first time. But why? Why would he repeat it to Peter? To reinstate him, to reinstate him, to reinstate him. Because then, following the do you love me, you know that I love you, then Jesus says, feed my sheep again. And then he goes on to say, Peter, I know that you love me, and so I'm going to reinstate you, but here's the thing, you're going to give your life for me. Because you love me, people are going to take you to where you don't want to go and stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And Peter would, in fact, give his life. And Peter would be crucified upside down out of love for Jesus. Now, this is what you need to hear tonight. Verse 25. Jesus did many other things. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose, I love this, even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I want you to settle in tonight to this reality that the resurrection speaks to God's power. He conquered the grave. And you can't see the resurrection apart from 
the cross. Like he had to die. He had to take on God's wrath. He had to pay the penalty. But if it stops at the cross and doesn't end with the resurrection, then what are we doing? But you cannot see the cross without the resurrection. They both matter. It was the penalty and power of sin that was crushed in Jesus on the cross. But it was also the power over sin and death that was crushed by an empty grave. And we are forgiven and alive forever. He conquered sin and grave. And it's one thing to acknowledge with our head, but it's another thing to truly believe in our heart. There's all kind of academics out there that could go, yeah, they never found his body. Yeah, it's really true. But I I just want to push you one step farther. I'm not asking tonight if you acknowledge in a historical Jesus. You'd be foolish not to. I'm not asking you to acknowledge that they never found the bones of Jesus because you'd also be foolish not to. I'm saying it goes beyond acknowledging facts and history, and it goes into believing that Jesus is life, that you are forgiven, that you are free in him forever, and whom the Son sets free, you are free indeed. Last Thursday... I got a phone call that my father-in-law was diagnosed with leukemia. And he is a wonderful man, loves the Lord, has counseled and shepherded and pastored people his whole life. He raised an amazing family. He gave me the greatest gift other than Jesus, and that is my wife, April. He has a legacy of helping people understand their identity in Christ of helping people understand what it means to live by faith and grace. His legacy is already clear. And we got a phone call saying um, that Mike has been diagnosed with leukemia and his options are to call hospice because he has a few weeks left or to fight it with everything we have at UAB. And he chose to fight it with chemo and We've been there with him for this weekend, and we've had some really special and sweet times. And I don't know his future on earth and how long that's going to last, but I do know he's in the best possible location right now, receiving the best care and treatment. And as we were in that room, um, it's obvious that things, this is not an ideal situation, right? And uh, as I'm navigating what it means to be a son-in-law to a wonderful mother-in-law, as I'm navigating what it means to be a husband to a daughter who is looking at the possibility of losing her father, as I'm navigating what it means to be a father to children that have never lost a grandparent, as I'm navigating all these things, I also was informed that he wants me to do his funeral. And it's, I don't know when that's going to be. It could be 20 years from now. But I feel this mantle of responsibility to care for him and to love him and to Remind him of the things he's reminded me of Jesus, my whole marriage to April. He was the guy that helped me see that Jesus loved me. And he was the guy that helped me understand that Christ has set me free from the penalty of sin and death. He was the guy that has given me the greatest gift of understanding who I am in Christ. And as we were leaving that that first night, I said to him, I said, look, I'm going to pray for you. He goes, oh, man, why, why do you want to do that? He's joking. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to pray with you. April and I are going to 
pray with you. And he's laying there and he's got a tube of chemo injected into his heart right now. And he's laying in this bed. And so I, I hold his left hand. Yeah, April's on his right hand. And he so tenderly grabs my hand. And I just pray the kingdom of Jesus all over him. I pray for healing. I pray that God would um, be so evident and tangible in these days. And it was a powerful, eternal moment worth everything. We leave that night. We bring our older two sons back the next night. And I said, you know, Mike, we're going we're gonna to pray for you. He goes, oh, man, why do you want to do that? He's joking. He said, don't you know that I know that your hearts are tormented? Don't you know that I know my family's heart is toward me? And don't you know that I know that King Jesus is true? He said, this prayer is more for you than it is for me. He's at total peace. Total peace. And so my oldest son, Josh, and my son, Caleb, grabs his hands. And we think we're about to pray for him. I'm holding his foot. And he prays. He hijacks the moment. He takes the moment right away from us. And if you could have heard what he prays. I mean, he, he is just staring at a thin veil between life and death. And to hear the anchor of his soul cry out to the living, resurrected king, free from fear, free from doubt, free from distraction, with power and authority to the point where he doesn't even know what to say other than he starts to pray for you. He starts to pray for this time together tonight that you would hear truth and believe. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight. It's not enough just to acknowledge cerebrally. Do you believe? Because belief is anchored in trust. And I can tell you, I am seeing a man who is looking at life's end anchored in trust that the one who hung on a cross has set him free indeed and made him alive on earth and forever. Do you believe? Do you believe? And if you have doubt, there's grace. If you are distracted, there's grace. If you are disheartened, there is grace. But more than your distractions and doubts, there's Jesus. Do you believe? Will you pray with me? We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about ways you can partner with the mission of Grace Auburn Church, visit our website, graceauburn.church.